0: Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in our country's armed forces. On this series, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and experiences. We'll talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector and we'll discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton. with you here on Veteran Voices. Thanks for joining us here today. So on today's show, we've got the opportunity to talk with a veteran that's up to a lot of big things, consulting, writing, speaking, and perhaps most importantly, helping others, which really resonates with me. So stay tuned as we learn a lot more. Hey, on a quick programming note before we get started, if you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Simply search for Veteran Voices, and we publish on a weekly basis, targeting every Saturday morning with a new episode with a great veteran or veteran advocate like we have here today. So with no further ado, let's bring in our featured guest here today, Don Edward Long not only a published author, but founder and president at Long Insights, LLC. Don, good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon, Scott. It's been a very, very long time since you and I have been able to have a dialogue. Of course, it was in the studio, in fact, that we had met, when we could still physically meet each other instead of being (laughs) miles apart. But here we are.
0: Here we are. But, you know, there are brighter days ahead. Uh, Here in Georgia, we've kind of had our work, cut out for us and and some extra heavy lifting to go, it seems. But hey, we're going to break through it all. And I really appreciate as busy as you are, because you've had some big news here in recent weeks, including this week. We'll we'll touch more on that. But I appreciate you carving some time out and and really sharing your story. I've enjoyed our collaboration and and the opportunity to rub elbows and really delighted to be able to share the Don Long story with our audience here at Veteran Voices. So, but before we get there, I I really want to, on the front end, I really like to to dive in with our guests and, and really kind of get a sense of who they are, where they're from, and their personality and whatnot. So tell us, Don, where are you from?
1: Well, I came from a small textile town called Bessemer City, not to be confused with Bessemer, Alabama, but right. Bessemer City, North Carolina. And uh, when I was growing up, again, it was, it was all about textiles. And, mm. you know, along the railroad track, you had all the different various mills from the mill that took the raw cotton and spun it into threads and then it would get, go a little bit farther down the tracks and it would be the thread would be uh, dyed and then it would go from there and then it would be stitched into some kind of material somewhere and then it would move down the track and it would be made into clothing or bed sheets or whatever it was. So, you know, you had that whole textile operation and that's mm. what really kept the town going as I was growing up all those decades ago.
0: You really paint a nice picture of like textile supply chain in a nutshell. I love that, (laughs) and you know we love our supply chain stories around here. The other thing that's that's really neat, as big as textiles were, kind of especially across the southeast. You know, NC State and Clemson University, the textile bowl. Whenever those two teams met on the gridiron and played football, uh, and that was really those were two well-known schools that did that sent a lot of talent into the textile industry. When you look back at your growing up in Bessemer City, North Carolina, is that right? That's right. So what was um, beyond textiles, uh, what else what, do you look back on growing up in Bessemer City that you really look back fondly and, and, and wish more folks had certain experiences?
1: Oh, I, you know, it, it, it's a small town life. Uh, it was one of those where it was, it was a real community uh, where it was safe enough. You didn't have to lock your doors even at night. Right? I mean, you could just you just want to have a little latch on your screen door and leave the door open to let some fresh air in. You could do it. Mm-hmm. It Was that kind of environment? Uh, as kids, you know, we weren't restricted to really where we could go. The rule was either you got home before the porch light got turned on, or <laughs> you went to the hickory bush and got a hickory so you could get your get your come up and for not getting home on time. So. You know, but it, and, and it was a great environment. It was an environment where if, if you were also, if you messed up in the neighborhood, the neighborhood mm. parents could whip you, and then they would call your parents and tell you what you did wrong so your parents would whip you when you got home. So, <laughs>
0: There's something you know, to be said for clarity, huh? Clarity of your decisions.
1: So, so you know, the structure and discipline we had growing up made the transition or made the move into the military a little bit easier, I will say. Mm, mm.
0: You know? So let's, let's, we're going to talk about – your why for joining the military here in just a moment. But what were you in Bessemer City up until you joined the Air Force? How, how did that work? Yeah,
1: yeah, right, right up into, into high school. I, you know, growing up, and again, growing up, we weren't poor, but we also learned and developed a work ethic early on. I mean, our parents, again, we never went without. But if we wanted that comic book, if we wanted that, you know, barbecue sandwich, if we wanted that extra malt, something like that, we had to go work for it. So mm-hmm. as kids, we would go collect pop bottles for the, for the deposit. We would cut grass. We would rake leaves. We did whatever we had to do to make some extra money in it and whatnot. So I kind of love that environment we, that we had uh, to, to really develop that work ethic and being responsible and kind of earning our way as we went. So,
0: mm-hmm. Sounds that, like it. it certainly has stuck with you uh, as you've moved into what you're doing, even now,
1: yeah, yeah, and it has, and I think a lot of what happens with us in our childhood, I think that helps form the 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 dynamic of who we become eventually. I mm. mean, we we obviously it's built upon over time as we get exposed to new environments and new people, and you know we have different people that speak into our lives and mentors and whatnot. But there's that foundational piece mm. that I think goes back to your roots of your uh, roots of your upbringing and. Uh, wherever you come from
0: so. all right good stuff there let's talk about what was your why for joining because you, you you didn't join a different branch you you were in the air force throughout your your service right
1: well yeah you know i kind of got off tangent you're working in small town working in textile and i will say you know we did a lot of, of chores my father and my grandfather were both roofers and so i got weaned on roofing real right. early and you know, once you go up there and you have to carry a bundle of shingles up or you get up there doing some hot mop roofing when it's 102 degrees outside in the summertime, you think, there's got to be a better way to make a living, <laughs> right?
0: That's and tough work.
1: Uh, and, and so I was doing that from about 12 to 16. At 16, I did spend my last year in high school working textile mill, but working textile mill, I saw all these really old guys, and I have to be careful because I have to remember I am an old guy now, right? <laughs> so, but I would see these people that, just basically lived, worked, and died in the mm-hmm. same little town. And I thought there's got to be something more. So a few weeks after I was thinking that, we had a whole lot of recruiters that came to our high school, and they had their desks set up, they had their tables set up in the gymnasium. So I went one by one, and I, you know, the Marines, the Army, the Navy, and the Air, yeah, wow, Air Force looks pretty cool. I love that man. I love the I love the logo. I love the colors. I love the uniform. It's great. Yep. Put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. So signed up and uh, delayed, you know, the, what is it? They had the de- delayed enlistment at the yep. time. So I signed up, and three months after graduating high school, after I spent some time with, with family and friends, took that bus trip down to Lackland Air Force Base, Texas. Mm-hmm. And that's when life really changed.
0: <laughs> hot, hot San Antonio. When, do you remember uh, what time of year did you go through basic?
1: I went through basic August 2nd, 1977, through September 23rd. I think I got that right. Mid-September uh, of that year, and it was hot. Mm. Hot. And combination of skunks and hot does not work very well because well, <laughs> we had our share of skunks at Lakeland as well.
0: But at least – you could get away from hot mopping, which I bet is also extremely hot and yeah. and hard labor,
1: right. And so get away from hot mopping to getting up at five thirty in the morning, doing calisthenics, running five miles, <laughs> and doing all this stuff that can maybe the whole small town didn't look so bad, right.
0: after all. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after you graduated from basic and you got through tech school, what was your what was your role in the Air Force? What was your your um, what we call AFSC? We call yeah. it right.
1: Yeah, uh, mine was a structural repair technician, um, working working airframe, sheet metal work, tin benders, uh, you, you name it. They had all kinds of names for us. But, you know, went to Chanute Air Force Base for my technical training. Of course, Chanute's one of those bases that don't exist anymore. It's been converted to some other civilian uh, resource. But went there, and then I spent my first duty station at Shaw Air Force Base, which wound up being just 126 miles from my hometown. That's so, right. You know, they say, enlist and see the world. And it's like, I enlisted and saw South Carolina.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Don, this is interesting because we didn't talk about this in any of our, really, our our dedicated conversations prior. I also, I was from Aiken, South Carolina, when I joined the Air Force. And my first duty station was Shaw Air Force Base, which was about an hour and 20 minutes from home, (laughs) which is unbelievable, right? Yeah. Uh, so we both served in Sumter, South Carolina. That's, that's that's really interesting. I didn't realize that about you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of course, I I think I served quite a bit earlier than you did, Scott. So, so you know, it. we still have we had still F4s and and uh, uh, F4s at Char Force Base when I was there. I think later they converted to F16s. I'm not uh, I'm not quite sure what they've got there now, but it was great little ba- base. Interesting, you had a lot of different aircraft. It wasn't just F4s. You had the, the old OV-10 Bronco with 20-millimeter mm. 20, 20 guns. He had the uh, this uh, the Cessna push-pull, the O2, they called them, the ones mm. the that would uh, carry the phosphorus rockets and paint the targets there in Newberry. Remember the target range in Newberry? I think uh, so. South Carolina? Yes. And so they would paint the targets for the f force to come in on their strafing runs and all that. So it was really cool to do that maintenance and see all these aircraft and how, how that interacted, right, how mm. all these support aircraft uh, Worked together so
0: yeah I, I really i don't know about you I, I miss seeing the aircraft um and and where we live in atlanta you know we see of course Hartsfield jackson mm. traffic you know non-military traffic but every so often we get over on the marietta side and you see all the the naval uh well you see different military traffic there but what i enjoy don is when i'm maybe headed to charleston or maybe headed up through charlotte and every so often, you'll see a couple F-16s that probably hit the range. They're coming back, or they're heading, and that that is that always just takes me back. So, what, if I understand your role, your AFSC, were you working on um, components for the aircraft, like as it became damaged, or upgrades, or or stuff like that?
1: Well, the, the, the right thing about the structural repair technicians we worked on everything. I mean, we we worked on uh certain avionics components some hydraulic components we did control cables and we didn't just and we also worked on the airframe if you had damaged panels if you had damaged structure then you would have to take and manufacture replacement pieces and you know splice those into the aircraft and uh so it's very interesting uh doing a lot of stuff you know it it, we, we have aircraft like F-4s would come back after a bird strike and you'd have a, a bird that got ingested by an engine and you'd have to go in and assess the damage to the intake. So you'd mm. put on your bunny suit and make sure you didn't have anything loose and take on your bunny suit and shimmy up by the air ramp and go down the intake. And, of course, it's still smelling like burnt bird mm. and you're crawling in there to assess the damage and figuring out what you got to do to repair it. And, wow. And, uh, all that it, kind of stuff. So
0: Much like the private sector, um, i would this is just my opinion here i would love to get your take you know the folks that keep aircraft going the folks that keep fleets going you know the the maintenance or the the engine technicians or the structural uh components like you're describing your role that is one of the thankless pools of professionals probably around whether it's in the military or on the private sector would you would you tend to agree with that
1: uh, yeah, it would. I mean, there, there's a lot of difficult, challenging roles for people that are uh, maintaining uh, aircraft these days. And, and you, you know, again, it's not a very glamorous job mm-hmm. at all. And and yet, um, there are things that they have to do because the, the, the folks that are working on aircraft, again, people's lives are at stake. It's not, you know, it's not like you're going to burn somebody's burger and they're going to send it back to the kitchen or something like that. So, so it's a very, very structured, very disciplined community. And uh, no, we haven't got to that part yet. And we're going to talk about transition a little bit, but I think it's it's one of the things, uh, one of the fields that I think is probably one of the easiest for our transitioning military today is mm. to go into aviation because that similarity between structure and discipline in the military, structure and discipline in that that particular environment. So
0: mm. well put, you know, and you know, looking at the private sector and and especially all that. Talented expertise that keeps, you know, our freight moving, uh, tractor trailers, and, and the fleets there, whether they're on the engine or other, other aspects, or as you mentioned, that the, the um, air freight fleets. So the ton of that talent that keeps global supply chain moving. All right, so let's switch gears a bit. I, I'm looking forward to, to picking your brain on your transition here in a little bit, but let's talk about some of your favorite leaders that either you worked with or maybe they worked for you or or folks you worked for when you think back of your time in the Air Force who are some of those folks that really made impact on in your career
1: well I'll tell you I think that the guy that made the first impact and I wish I could remember his name but I can tell you that he was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force and and I'll tell you what he impressed me on the most when my first week at Chanute Air Force Base it was a there was an air show taking place in Rantoul, which was the, the city right outside of the base. And so, so we were in charge of cleaning up a missile display for, for a static display as part of the air show. Mm-hmm. So I remember this lieutenant colonel grabbing me and four, four or five other guys and took us out and told us what we had to do, gave us our assignment. And for me, I was kind of like Slim Pickens. Here's this missile. On this platform, about a 45-degree angle, so what do I do? I climb up there. I shimmy up to the nose of this thing because I figure, hey, if I'm going to clean this thing, I'm going to clean it from the nose down, right? (laughs) So I'm sitting up there like Slim Pickens in in the movie, right, and I'm cleaning this thing. And I look down on the ground, and there's this lieutenant colonel who's got his sleeves rolled up. He's got his hand going down in the bucket with a sponge, and he's washing the wheels. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute. Here's this lieutenant colonel. I'm just a an airman nothing, right, mm. along with the other airman nothings that are there. And and he could have just told us, hey, guys, get this cleaned up. I'll come back and get you. But he impressed me because it it was, here's this officer knowing that we had this objective and he was willing to go, and even in his, I mean, it wasn't full dress blues, but, you know, they wore the, the light blue shirt and the blue right. slacks and core shoes. But he's down there working with us, and I thought, "Wow, that's mm. not servant leadership, right?" And so that's one of the first uh, guys that really impacted me. I, I, I couldn't cover all of them, but I will fast forward to another another guy that really impressed me. Um, if you don't mind, I'll mention the name. I, I've yeah, lost sure. touch I've lost touch with him. He's, he was Master Sergeant Joe Erkernock, mm. and he became my supervisor when I when I moved from my permanent station to Shaw Air Force Base. The Travis Air Force Base. When I when I left Shaw, I had worked really hard to develop my skills, and I'd gotten up to to my seven level. I had gotten my my E5 stripes, and and one of the things I wanted to do when I got my E5 stripes was move to a different base because you know as you as you work alongside with individuals and you get promoted, then sometimes you have that that buddy buddy thing. They think, uh, well, I don't have to listen to you because you were just a senior airman. Mm. Last year, right. So I thought it was better from a leadership position to go to somewhere new where they didn't know me. But before I left the base, because I had honed my skills so much, you know, we had our AFTO 623, which was our training record, and we always got our airman performance reports every year. Remember those? So mine at Shaw Air Force Base, every everything was nine, 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 nine. nine. Top of the top of the line. I thought I'm hot stuff, right? I get out to Travis Air Force Base. I'm out there for about six months. It's time for my first evaluation. And all of a sudden I get my evaluation back from Joe Eckernock and he's he's uh he's giving me sevens and eights and I'm like, mm. You jerk. <laughs> what are you doing? You need to call the people at Shaw because people at Shaw said, I'm perfect. I was young then and, and uh got a little bent out of shape. So I just uh I I went to call him on it and I said, Hey, what is this? What's this? He said, Look. He said, you're one of the best technicians I've got, but he said, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't let constantly let you know those things that you need to work on and those things you need to be better because none of us are perfect. We all have things. He says, he says, these guys that just basically pencil whipped your record and gave you nines didn't give you any feedback for improvement. Mm. And so when he sat down and he explained that to me and he said, I want you to be the best you absolutely can be, but you can't be that if I don't help coach you in those areas you need to Mm. work on. Mm. So that really resonated with me. And in fact, I carried that forward when, you know, I was in a position of having to manage a a department and having to supervise individuals and think about, you know, our responsibility to help coach teach train because none of us are perfect because we're all evolving. We're all learning. We're all growing. So, so Joe Eckernock, Was was really great that he really took the time to invest in me, carried me through this day to remember that we we all have some growing to do. Hmm. No matter where we're at in life, we always have growing to do.
0: That sounds really powerful, and I bet you've applied that to countless folks that have worked for you since that time. I bet.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've always you know attempted to encourage people, and I think one of the one of the problems is leaders sometimes and when we work with individuals, there's, you know, they're individuals, right? And every individual has unique gifts and skills. And and I, I've learned over the years that if you have all types of people, right? You're gonna have the people that are widget makers. And so if they're widget makers, you don't necessarily wanna make those people supervisors of widget makers if they don't have those personal skill sets or they don't have the you know empathetic skills to be able to to work with and coach people so because there are times where people in those kind of roles they get promoted in the supervisor roles and next thing you know they're failing and they feel like they're a failure because Mm. they didn't survive so so i think having that ability to be able to just assess people and make the best of what they are and encourage and coach them according to their inherent traits and skill sets is very important for a leader Mm.
0: Let's talk about when you look back on your career in the military with the Air Force, some of those accomplishments that you still kind of stir something today. And what do you look back and what are you most proud of while you served?
1: Well, again, I I think that having one, having just some great coaches, some great trainers, some great supervisors that that really drove and inspired uh, that was very important. Um, you know, as, as a result of, of getting a number of different awards, I was able to experience things that, that some people couldn't. For instance, before leaving Char or Force Base, uh, just a few weeks before leaving there, I actually got a what was, at the time, the longest check ride in the backseat of an F-4. Really? So, so, yeah, they had an awards program that if you were voted what they called Airman of the Quarter, mm-hmm. you would get a ride around the flagpole, as it used to be called. And so typically what they would do is take guys up, and they would literally fly around the base one time and land again. But this one particular mission I went on, in fact, I still still have the mission record. Uh, Major Kiesel was the, was the pilot that flew us. But of course, you went through all the egress training and everything because you had to learn to operate radios and operate right. the ejection seats and all that. So here we go, week before Christmas, 1981. I'm sitting in the back seat of this F4, and and uh, we taxied out and closed the canopy up, and the uh, the pilot lit those two J79 afterburners, and away we went. So we spent two hours, <laughs> two hours flying around. We went over South Carolina, North Carolina, Alabama. Uh, just covering a lot of territory.
0: Wow. What an experience. Those are, uh, when I was in, I think they call those incentive rides, and yeah. I only got one in a, in a KC-135. We refueled a B-2, or a B-1, rather. Mm-hmm. Now, that that's, that's really cool to see that level of orchestration and mm-hmm. um, just that immense attention to detail to have these two aircraft going whatever speed, you know, easily, conservatively, Three hundred miles an hour, mm-hmm. uh, and to have them dance so that they can transfer. Of course, just jet fuel. all it is, is jet fuel, Ali. You know, <laughs> right, you know right. and and just that, it, it's amazing. There, there's there's a level of grace to it. So, but but I would have, as much as I enjoyed that, to ride in the back of an of an F four Phantom two for two hours <laughs> and explore the <laughs> southeast. Man, that has to, that's got to be one of those memories you'll you'll always oh, have.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, best aircraft ride ever.
0: And did the, the the pilot. I think you said Major Kiesel. Is that what you said?
1: Major Kiesel.
0: He was the pilot. He, he didn't try to get you sick, did he?
1: No. Well, actually, he did. And <laughs> and uh, I had a good buddy of mine that had flown a couple weeks for me again. He literally just flew around the flagpole, used both of his both of his bags, <laughs> and still left a bit bit of a mess in the cockpit. But yeah, you know, he tried to do a few a few banks, a few turns. But you know, I had learned early on you just got to sometimes you just got to go with the flow go with the ride just relax in the seat right and go with the aircraft so you actually let me fly for about 10 minutes too
0: man that's awesome uh, incredible good good experience all right so now let's talk about the transition um you know you and i both have had no shortage of conversations and and i mean ever since i left you know because um you know, I, I didn't have the easiest transition, and I, and I didn't have a lot of the strikes against me that a lot of folks, you know, after you know, eight, eighteen, nineteen years of war, have. You know, combat vets coming back that have PTSD, and they don't have, they may not have degrees, and you know, they've got all these challenges. Uh, I didn't have any of that, and I struggled back in o2 with my transition. And I've heard countless stories about folks that um, just not pointing any fingers to to any, whether the military or them. It's just, you struggle with that transition. So tell us, let's talk about your transition and how it went. And then I'd love to kind of also hear about what you've gathered as you've heard other transition and uh, from other veterans and what you've shared with them to kind of coach them.
1: Right, For me, when I got, again, my, my last duty station was Travis air force base. And, and I remembered when I was getting out and I was exiting at the time, we called them the the Consolidated Base Personnel Office or CBPO. So I remember going to the CBPO office, and this was probably about six months before I was going to exit. And I said, "Look, i you know I don't think I'm going to re-up this go around. Um, I'm I'm going to take an early out of nine years, two months active duty. I was going to get out. And I said, uh, I said, you know, what do I need to do? And so I remember a person sitting behind the desk, and he pointed to a bulletin board, and they said. Well, there's a bunch of index cards and flyers up there. Go, you know, make some calls and good luck. Mm. And that was it. That was what I was told. I went over there and I started scoping around what was on the bulletin board and happened to see a flyer for Eastern Airlines. And so, okay, here we go. So next thing I know over the next couple of months, I'm flying first class from California to, to Miami, Florida on the Miami Airlines flights. Uh, out of San Francisco, um, they actually flew me on two separate occasions, did the interviews. I'll shorten the story up. Eventually, I wound up going to work for Eastern uh, after a couple of, a couple of um, opportunities they put up there for me. But mm. uh, I went to work for them, and, I, and actually going to work from the military and the aviation really wasn't a lot different. Because in the military, obviously, there's that rank structure. There's the structure, the discipline, the sense of mission. It's very critical. Mm. Uh, Everything that you're doing is very important. And so going into commercial aviation, it really wasn't a lot different because you had the same kind of requirement for structure and discipline Mm. and FAA regulations and all this. And so I found going into aviation, even though Eastern only lasted about another five years, uh, finally closed its doors in 91, and then after that, I went to another aviation working for a jet engine overhaul facility for about 12 and a half years. But all through all in all going from there into that, uh, those commercial entities like that or that to that type of work was really no hiccups. Mm. I didn't start realizing the hiccups until and, and the problems with transition that I know vets are experiencing today until about 19 years later after getting out when I started going into other industries, other industries not related to aviation, what I was used to. So going to work for manufacturing companies, uh, print shops, uh, eventually healthcare companies and whatnot. And and what I started seeing was a totally different culture, a totally different dynamic, a totally different work ethic. And so for the next 12 years or so, I would, you know, notice – all of the, all the differences, all the delta, right, between what I was used to, between military and, and aviation history, and what was going on in all these others. And I started seeing a real disconnect and a misunderstanding that those of us who have served in the military and those that currently work in aviation, they understand the importance of structure and discipline. But it seemed like a lot of other businesses lack that. Right? They l- lack that foundational piece because they see it as being uh, too rigid. And, and, and so I've got, you know, I've got some analogies I've given about having to have a foundation and how you build on top of a f- foundation. I won't get into it now. But, but basically, um, I started really having those transitional problems once I got into other industries that somewhat mimic what I hear our veterans going through today. And that's why I I feel of like taking that experience that I've gone through and say, okay, how do I use this knowledge, this experience that I've gone through, and how can I help? Look at at seeding information in the right space and the right time within the military and civilian veteran community to help them avoid some of those things I experienced. Yep, so that's
0: basically where we're at now. All right, so. Really interesting perspective, uh, especially because uh, you were saying way back at the, at the beginning of this interview about how it really helped your transition, given the skill sets you were learning in the Air Force and how much uh, applicability—that—that that, I think that's the right word—there mm-hmm. was in the private sector. And I and 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 um, that'd be some that'd be a great advantage, despite the other you know some of the other other components of transition that that you know outside of skill set that could, that can still be challenging you know when you, when you talk to um, veterans these days here in 2020 that are maybe they're on terminal leave or maybe maybe they've already separated and they're still looking for a job or whatever wherever they are in their transitional stage what are some of the things what what are some of the ways that you advise them and coach them
1: well one thing is i try to try to get them to think in, in military terms to think strategically and tactically about what they're going to do and where they're going to do it, uh, as as I present, if if you think back to our military experience, you know our mission was whatever our service branch told us our mission was. So the military told us what we were going to do, they told us how we were going to do it, and they told us when we were going to do it. Mm. Right. So you had this command and control. Well. You know, as a military member, you get out, you're a veteran, you exit the military, there's no longer that command control because it's just you. And so many veterans get out and, and they're so disconnected from, from a bigger sense of mission. And what I try to tell them is, look, the mission is now you and your family, your spouse and your family. That's your mission. So you have to create what that new mission looks like for you and your family. And as you create that mission for you and your family, you have to think strategically and tactically about what are the things that I need to do to put in place to be able to provide the needs and, the, and fill the gaps, whether they're educational gaps and especially with relational gaps, for you to be able to take and, and be successful at your new mission mm-hmm. that you've created for yourself. So I try to get, get them to think in military uh, with a military mind.
0: I really like that. I, I like the, uh, the customization element to that, to kind of building your your, your new mission plan. Um, it's so important, as I've learned, when it comes to transition, you know, kind of determining what you want to do or what company or what type of role or what, you know, kind of a combination of things and then working backwards to figure out how to get there and, and what resources you need or what you need to learn along the way. It really reminds me a lot Don of professional certification. You know we get a lot we get asked a lot about you know what certification should we go after and, and it's you know it, it, for me it's always reverse engineering is the easiest way to figure that out. Uh, it, it's not easy, but it's the easiest way, right It really helps. Before we switch over to what you're up to now and, and some of your big news, anything else when it comes to transition that folks should really understand whether they're, you know, in the military, listening to this conversation, or if they're civilian employers, you know, and and they don't want, they don't know what they don't know. Anything else you'd like to add?
1: Well, I I think we need to, you know, the word transition has really been overused, mm. and and I prefer to use the term civilian reintegration because think about it, you and I weren't born military, mm. we were civilian to start with, right? We just decided because, and again, it goes back to. The character of the individuals that are going to enlist in the military its people with a servant's heart, right? So, you know, those of us that chose to go into military to stay whatever length of time we stayed, whether it's a tour or whether it's a 20 or 30 years, it's only a portion of our overall career life. And so so what I call it when I do these presentations, I call it civilian reintegration. In essence, instead of thinking in the terms of transition and and, you know we'll talk a little bit more, may talk a little bit more about some of the other programs and veteran service organizations that are out there to help, I think military, what we need to do is we need to start early in the process with our military members. And it's not an either-or, right? Career development needs to be happening in parallel with the military service whether it's four years or 30 years, and constantly doing things to improve ourselves, to, you know, to, to increase our knowledge, get certain certifications, build relationships, not just in the military, but outside the military, and do this in parallel. And I think, you know, I tell people 18 months before they get out is really when they need to start making their strategic plans. The reason I say 18 months, the first two two and a half years of military service needs to be getting you know proficient in your MOS, getting used to that military work ethic, you know all the team team building, the leadership, all of those dynamics. And once that's ingrained in you, and you're now this military member, whatever branch you're in, then there needs to be something done within the within house within the military to start thinking about look even if you're here 30 years you're you know you're going to get out you're going to be late 40s right yeah. if you stay in 30 years you've still got another 20 or 30 years to do something whatever that something is so why not be building yourself to be prepared throughout your length of service so that you don't have the transitional problems we have right now mm-hmm. so
0: well put uh well put and and you know from what i've heard in in talking with different folks the the well i've probably heard the most about the army's change when it comes to uh, that soldier for life program and some of the tweaks mm-hmm. they've made the enhancements they've made um i'm hoping that the other branches are following suit and and you know focusing on the post service time frame as much as they you know or at least uh, to a certain degree as much as they focus on uh, while that military member is serving in uniform but we'll see you know it's it continues improvement you never arrive right it's always right. a journey right. All right, so let's talk about um, what you're up to now. There's a couple of big projects that I'm aware of, and we'll touch on those here momentarily. Uh, the, your big broadcast last night, and of course the book. But what you know, before we talk about those things, what what do you do? How, how do you how are you helping organizations right now?
1: We have a big communication disconnect, and you you were alluding to this earlier. There's things to be taught on both sides. You know, it's not just one sided with the veteran and military com- uh, communities, but we also Need to be talking a lot more to our businesses, especially in light of what's happened in 2020. I mean, we we've been faced with with more challenges this year than we have probably over the last decade. But I think part of the communication problem that I that I believe in is that sometimes on the military side we paint a picture that hurts us more than helps us. And I'm going to go back to something you said earlier about the PTSD issue. Mm. Again, PTSD is is sometimes often seen as only a military disorder and it's not just a military disorder. And they also have to understand that not a hundred percent of people that are in the military are in combat situations. And so therefore a hundred percent of the military people don't suffer from PTSD. But I think sometimes the narrative is military members have PTSD, which might make a business owner think, do I want to take a chance with damaged goods? Mm. Am I going to have to worry about the stability of this individual that I'm going to bring into my workplace? So we've got to make sure that when we're talking to those business owners, those business owners understand two things. One, a small percentage of military people suffer from PTSD. And – Fortunately, we've got a number of great programs that do help with those individuals that, ha- that have suffered from that disorder, that have helped them get on the other side of that disorder, and therefore has made these people more resilient and able to identify and deal with challenging situations, which makes them a tremendous asset mm. for businesses today that are so- suffering from things like the COVID-19 and the impact on business the social unrest and its impact on business. And these military members that have gone through that and have learned to overcome, they're the best thing businesses could have right now. Mm. And so I, I think we have to make sure that businesses understand the full dynamic of the PTSD and not paint it as a, you know, this is everybody's damage kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that, Those are really important clarifying remarks. And um, I'm hoping that, we, I'm hoping, you know, based on what I've seen, and, and early anecdotal. It's really tough to to, mm-hmm. to um, really study this uh, as an outsider. But it seems like organizations, um, especially those, I think, a Starbucks that have made huge commitments to hire veterans. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, other other organizations out there. It seems like we're making progress in, in to speak military ease or veteran ease, so so that you have less language barriers mm-hmm. and you've got a little more. Better understanding of some of the things you brought up, mm-hmm. um, but we've got a long way to go, and we've got so many folks. Wh- whether it's just the veterans, or whether it's the veterans themselves, but also their spouses and mm-hmm. their significant others, that we've got to make sure are are hireable and and have opportunities. So, anyway, I, I love some mm-hmm. of the things you touched on there, and really appreciate your your view on your transition, but others, but also what others are experiencing now. So, let's talk about this. Uh, the Veteran Transition Experience, I, and I, I, I did not have the opportunity to check it out live yesterday. Uh, so tell us about what this project is and, 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 and why it's important to you.
1: Again, in this VTE, as we call it, everybody in the military loves their acronyms, and so uh, so we, we call it Veteran Transition Experience. And, again, it's, it's, it's really a misnomer because, like I said, we were civilian, then military, and civilian again. So it's really a reintegration basically Scott over the last couple of years listening to all of these different veteran stories and hearing you know hearing all these veterans saying that a certain program let them down or they felt like they didn't get anything out of the program or they were struggling they weren't able to find they weren't able to connect they weren't able to you know figure out really what it was they wanted to do so many veterans coming out and going to colleges and getting a degree and then Working in something totally unrelated to their degree, and you look at some of the statistics we see today. We see ten percent of veterans homeless. Somebody served their country, and again, it's not all from from necessarily job loss. Unfortunately, we have some other things that create that add to the to the homeless thing. But it's it's ridiculous that we have ten percent of our veterans getting out and not having a home to go to. We've got 22 veteran suicides happening every day. We know we've got that din- dynamic going on, and a number of those happen because of financial struggles and the pressures of the people that can't handle it on the outside. They're not prepared to deal with the nuances of civilian life outside of the military. You've got uh, recently there was a report 50% of military members felt like they and their spouses, they and their families, did not have support enough support in their transition process, which is ridiculous considering we have almost 40,000 veteran service organizations across the country to help them. And so that didn't make sense. And then the other part of the dynamic was you've got 70% of veterans that once they do transition out, they do get into a job, within about two years, they're leaving that job because they're dissatisfied and disgruntled. Now, I want to go back something. If I'm going to back up a little bit something you said earlier about the business side. I think what we have to teach businesses, and one of the things I tell business leaders is if you as a business are hiring veterans and are planning to bring veterans in and you want them to blend into your culture, that's a death sentence for you. And I'll tell you why. If you have a culture that is complacent, that is not advancing, that's not growing, that's not learning, that's not expanding that culture dynamic, then what's happening, I think, a lot of these military members that go into a business that bring in that stronger work ethic, that sense of team, that sense of mission and everything else, it's being drowned out because many businesses just want them to go with the status quo, just blend into the culture, rather than taking full advantage of these military traits and these military skills that can help basically move the change and help evolve the business culture to what it needs to be with the times. And so, I, again, I encourage any business, when you hire a veteran, when you onboard a vet, don't, don't just let them get lost in the mix. Mm-hmm. Take full advantage of what they bring to disabled because they will help your business grow in ways that you cannot imagine
0: the veteran transition experience? Mm-hmm. Is this a program that you'll continue to be yeah. leading? Should we go further about how folks can plug in there?
1: Yeah. Basically, with the veteran transition experience, my, my objective is to grow this and get this to the point that we can start making this maybe an add-on to some of the existing programs that the military is doing. We really mm-hmm. want to get to the military community. So if we can help tap soldier for life or whatever and just take this content take this information and again we're not I'm, I'm not out there this is not a new veteran service organization it's not a new nonprofit this is just strictly a you know what i see what i've seen what i've heard what i've experienced i see a way to close some of those communication gaps and some of those some of those you know some of those things we need to fill in in communication to to make it better for vets
0: to supplement what's what's out there, and right, and uh, right. and to make it more effective is what I'm hearing.
1: Right, especially Absolutely.
0: based on your your um, your background, both being a veteran and a business leader, mm-hmm. you know, you, it sounds like, and this is just my interpretation, you, you're seeing these gaps, you're seeing seeing these phases or uh, spaces of the transition experience mm-hmm. that can be improved, and it sounds like you're offering some really neat tools to supplement and 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 to enhance and optimize this. A critical part of a veteran's journey, right?
1: Right, and and as you mentioned earlier, and I, I want to make sure that people understand this is not just about the military member because we don't want to forget the spouses, mm. we don't want to forget the kids, and, and especially those that might have older, you know, older children that have been, uh, you know, military brats or whatever they call them these days, but you know, gone through that military experience. You can't disconnect the family from the military member. We want to treat the, not just the military member, but the family as a whole unit. Mm. So we offer this up to anybody, military spouse, you know, um, individuals that are old enough to start thinking about career development and planning—16, you know, 17, 18 years old—as uh, a military family member. Hey, we we want to have you participate in this. We want to help you. We want to make sure you've got the right resources that you're connected, you're plugged in, and doing the things you need to do as part of your lifelong learning.
0: Mm, love it. All right. So before we talk about the book, how can folks? Will you be doing this um, digitally and then in person as we as we get back to whatever this this new normal we're getting into? How will how can folks plug into it?
1: Well, ultimately, uh, obviously, because of COVID, we have to do this virtual for a while. So we're looking the next couple of months of doing this uh, virtually through a th- studio through Zoom. And we can gather a few people in the studio, but we're very limited in, the, in that regard. The hope is to eventually take this content, take this program, and do a train-to-trainer with it. Uh, we've got a lot of great people out there coaching and mentoring with a number of organizations. So we can give them this as a tool. If they can take this tool and go out and engage members of the military community at bases all over the country, and they can start doing that, or if some of the existing military programs that are out there—Soldier for Life, TAPS, or whatever—if they want to have us, you know, give them what we're giving as content material to add to that at an earlier stage, uh, th- this is all being given away for free. So, so this is just more of a philanthropic effort mm. to. Take that experience because, again, some of the feedback I've gotten is military members are being told by other military members how to prep for civilian life. So how can somebody in the military who doesn't have civilian experience (laughs) tell another military member how to prep for civilian life? So I think it's incumbent upon us to have those decades or years of experience to go back and say, here's what I've discovered so that you don't have these problems. Here's what you can do. So that when you get to the point I got to, when I got out, you don't have those struggles. You don't have those challenges. And that's mm. what we want to do. We need to go back. We need to plant those seeds. We need to help those individuals out.
0: I love it. I love uh, deeds, not words. You know, uh, one of my good old buddy, John Phillips, uh, he's really ingrained that in my ears. And, and I'm not sure, I always attribute it back to John. I'm sure there's different versions of that. But it's just such a beautiful cuts through all the noise. And, right. and, Don, you're doing it. I mean, that it mm. takes action. It takes a lot of hard work and heavy lifting, but there's such a huge need, and, and I, I appreciate your approach with that program. Okay, let's talk about this book. I'm going to get 10 copies on my way. I haven't read it yet, and that, that's shame on me, but I will, because I know you've gotten a lot of great feedback from, from folks that have gotten a lot out of it. From the Inside Out, Plotting the Course of Our Personal and Professional Life, which is available on, on Amazon, by the way. I found it there. Tell us about uh, what called you to write this book, and what, what's it about?
1: Well, yeah, it started, I, actually, this is a very old writing, an old, very old manuscript. I actually started writing this about 15, 16 years ago. And, and what inspired me to do that is I, as I, again, got out of that transition from working in aviation and started seeing some of these other business dynamics. And I started thinking about my own, you know, personal struggles and, and things and things that didn't work and things that did work. And started reflecting about how much is inside of us, right? That there are things that happen outside of us that we can allow to let them affect us in a negative way, or we can look internally and say, okay, how can I take and and look at this a different way, look at it a different perspective? For instance, one of the one of the things that I, I mentioned, talk about is that it's how we choose to deal with the situation, we ultimately have the decision-making power as to let it stop us or to find a way to work around it. And so um, as I put these thoughts in there, I thought, okay, let me start jotting down. So I just started writing some, you know, some more like diary notes, and then that went to memoirs, and then next thing you know, I'm writing an outline for chapters, and I thought, well, I, you know, i want this to just be a quick read, a quick reflective, you know, look in the mirror, look at yourself, look at who you are. Think about how you can be in the driver's seat. You have the ability to either be in the driver's seat or let somebody else drive for you. Mm. And, and so I'm hoping that with this book, that it, it'll give people an opportunity to, to put them in the driver's seat to really look at things from somebody else's perspective. You know, it's, Two of the things that I, I, I love, I love Steve Covey. What he said, you know, begin with the end in mind and uh, seek first to understand. Right. So too many times, and I think this is what happens with our social culture is we we really don't think enough about putting ourselves in the other person's shoes. Mm. We we all we're in this we're in this battle because people are talking in absolutes, and so that those those the discussion of absolutes. Is keeping us polarized. But if we took the time to just listen and think about what if I could put myself in that person, what if I could see it from their perspective? If I saw it from their perspective and looked back at myself, then I would realize that, hey, I'm the one that needs to make the change. I'm the one that needs to be different. I need to change my thought patterns. And so I'm hopeful that this book will do that for a number of people.
0: I, for one, think you're absolutely right. And about this polar opposites, and you know, I had a, a buddy of mine that I served in that was had made a big impact on my life. Uh, Troy Boozer, he's now in the ministry, doing big things, doing literally doing the Lord's work. And we were talking here in recent months, given these crazy, these these challenging times we live in. And he made it real. You know, it's not us versus them. You know, there there are so many people involved. It's not just two sides of the table. And you know, there's some nuance nuances to any argument it's not an alpha and bravo it's not just just you know binary and so I really believe that's an important comment you were just making there because I think if we realize that and embrace that and try to find that common ground that exists oftentimes even with the two polar opposite individuals they can still find some common ground especially if they just apply a little bit of empathy which you know, we all need a lot more of that these days. But great commentary. I think it's it's got to be a great read. You've gotten a lot of feedback from folks that have read it, and and it's made a uh, made a mark in their in their journeys, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it has. I, I've had people read it and and tell me, you know, that that they would think differently now about things that had impacted them one way, and they they held on to this certain belief. Um, it's it's not in this book. I'll give you a, a, a kind of a preview of of coming attractions, but. Uh, another work that a piece that I'm working on, I, I use the analogy of watching a movie all the way through and then seeing it for the second time, and then seeing a scene or hearing a dialogue that you didn't hear the first time around, and it changes your perspective on the movie. Mm. Well, guess what? Our life is the exact same way, because we we have a certain thing, but if we once we introduce new information to that it can take us back to 20, 30 years ago of something that happened that changes our whole perspective on it. Mm. A personal thing for me is my father. My my father passed when I was very young, 70 years old, had a massive heart attack. Mm. I knew he hadn't lived the perfect life, and I wondered wondered about, quite frankly, I wondered about his salvation. I didn't know. 20 years, I wondered, Mm. what about my dad? I knew about his life and you yeah, wasn't he yeah, wasn't a perfect man but then again none of us are mm. but i love my father but 20 years later i found out that he when he was found he had a he had a little pocket bible in his in his shirt pocket in his work shirt pocket mm. and he had cross in my pocket in his wallet that he carried mm. with him and so it made me realize hey my dad did believe he was a believer and all that. again it didn't change anything about him being perfect but all of that that I wondered for over twenty years about my dad, once I found out that new information, mm. it totally changed the dynamic of, mm. of you know, you know, missing, still missing my father, but mm. just thinking of him in a different way. So that's a
0: that is a compelling way of putting it. And I was about to share an example, but I'm not after after you shared <laughs> that. It 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 sounds tedious. That's such a, a some powerful perspective there, Don. So. What I heard you say is, stay tuned because you've got more books coming out, more books yeah. up, other projects yeah. up your sleeve. All right. So let, as we before we wrap up here, make sure folks know how to get in touch with you. I want to kind of just go broader here. And when you, so when you look at global business, we've talked about all kinds of things mm-hmm. in, this, in this pretty wide ranging interview, all pretty much tied back to to service and, and the veteran community and whatnot, veteran journey. But when you look at the, the global business environment right now, what's one thing that sticks out that really has got your attention?
1: From a global perspective, I, I think, and again, you've seen this, you folks talk about this in the supply chain a lot. You know, we have, we have gone, businesses over the years, and one of the reasons Textiles doesn't exist in Best City, North Carolina anymore is all the offshore, right? Let's mm. do it cheaper somewhere else. Let's pay somebody a, a buck a day to produce this rather than paying minimum wage here, and let's offshore. And so a lot of businesses have, have left. and And so you have supply chains that have, You know, businesses have gone to rely on on a single-source provider, the cheapest single-source provider. Mm. Boom, COVID-19 hits, areas of the globe get cut off. Now you can no longer get those products. You can't get those raw goods. You can't get those services. Whatever it is, it's shut off. And I think globally with what COVID has done for us this year has made us realize we can't, as the old adage goes, put all our eggs in one basket. We've got to develop multiple supply chains. We've got to leverage our technology. We've got to change a lot of things, especially when you look at our infrastructure, our nation's infrastructure. It is so outdated. Think about just the just the nature of a tractor-trailer truck and how mm-hmm. we use tractor-trailer trucks to move products across the country. And then fast forward, I've already been thinking about this. Elon Musk is one of those great visionaries, right? right. We already see what he's done with SpaceX over the next uh, over the past 19 years, uh, you know, reuse, reusable rockets that looks like a 1950s B-movie. Boca Chica, he's Boca Chica, Texas, uh, down there around Brownsville, he's building a new spaceport. You've got all those things going on. He's got the Hyperloop, okay? Think about the implications of the Hyperloop and how that could move goods across the country mm. like the old bank thing, right? Are the old bank thing that used to use it <laughs> to drive through at the bank thing. Yeah. Imagine using those things instead of tractor trailer trucks to move goods and services across mm. the country. Mm. So we've got that sort of thing. So I think the 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 introduction of new technology i know greg is big on robotics and stuff like this to help supplement the workforce because we don't have 800 million workers like china does
0: right and just to clarify don's talking about greg white co-host extraordinaire on supply chain now a related (laughs) program here but yeah
1: yeah so i've got to put a plug in for greg somewhere but you know greg greg white talks about the robotics but i think all of this other technology that we can bring to bear to help that supply chain and moving goods and services especially when you know, you have these disruption, as he talks about, but uh, being able to change gears and switch gears and move product to and from a lot faster than, mm. I mean, trucking just really, uh, but we rely on it so heavily, but it's time for it to be upgraded, right, with the technology that we have. So so I see a lot of changes happening in that regards. multiple, multiple sources for Multiple pipelines for businesses, and don't don't rely on just one because if one gets shut down, then it's easier to to go some to another supplier and just ramp up production there.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: those kinds of things are going to change. How not displacing employees? I, it's great that we have all the AI talk that we have, and technology, and robotics, and stuff like that. But if we think that that the objective is to replace human workers it should be to help enhance the human work experience. And so we have to get businesses to stop laying people off and think of ways to re-employ those same people into other parts of the business. And that's another thing I try to talk about because once you create efficiencies and you start laying off people, you set up up the stage where people are no longer engaged in your business because they wonder, I'm next, right? They're thinking, I'm next. So
0: Going back to the infrastructure, I think that's a great yeah. point. I, I'm going to get this wrong, and I'm, I'm probably going to hear about it, but it's something like the American Association of Civil Engineers. It's some kind of a association like that mm-hmm. to represent that profession. And they come out with a scorecard every couple of years, uh, I, I think every two years, that rates the U.S.'s infrastructure. And I think I, I'm almost positive we got a D-plus on the last <laughs> report card. I'm and,
1: surprised it's that high.
0: <laughs> really, and it's such a, you know, the bridges and the water systems and uh, some of the highways and byways that, that, of course, furthers supply chain, but but just life here in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got some big challenges there, so I, that's um, great perspective there, and, and it's a good note to kind of, uh, not necessarily an uplifting note to wrap up on, but yeah. a good one and an important one. Here's a better note to wrap up on. So, Don, I bet. You're gonna find some folks that want to get in touch with you and plug in, support some of the things you're doing, or check out, um, you know, your book, or or maybe even get some advice on their upcoming, uh, what'd you call it, civilian reintegration. That C- civilian
1: reintegration.
0: Yeah, that's a, a few extra. Yeah. Si- those sil- extra syllables are above my pay right. grade, but yeah. I'll get it down next time we, we chat. Civilian reintegration. So, how can folks get in touch with you, Don?
1: Well, they can they can either look me up on LinkedIn, Don Edward Long on LinkedIn. They can go to my website www.longinsights with an s llc.com or pick up the phone. It's the best way to get a hold of me 770-377-4569. it's so, just uh,
0: just that easy.
1: Just just that easy. I you know, I, I I try to help wherever I can, however I can. I don't know everything, but I hey I could do a couple of things. <laughs> hey, we're well, gonna get you on the mountain hike too, you and Greg. You, yeah, that's. You
0: know. I forgot to ask you about that because I have really enjoyed that. And to, to our listeners, <sighs> if you haven't seen it, it's just a it's just a it, mat- hike. It's
1: it's only a mountain, and I got to tell you, I will not take credit for another man's work. And and I've got to tell you, when it comes to mentoring and coaching, you don't necessarily have to have an older individual to help mentor or coach you. Remember that younger people can coach us. Mm, okay? That's right. I've got a great friend, Jason Smith. I'm going to put in a shameless plug for Jason Smith. He was the reason I got this published. He found out about my writing, and he says, why didn't you publish it? And I said, well, just because I'm not, you know, I, I don't know if it's that good or anything. He said, publish, just publish. Get it out there. You can do it. And So, it, it, you know, he, he gave me a kick in the rear end, which is what I needed, and I, and I got that published out there. So, anyway. He and I also realized, look, you know, in the age of COVID and everybody sitting at home and packing on the extra pounds and not staying in good shape and everything because <laughs> of all the virtual stuff, hey, let's get out and let's go exercise and stuff like that. So we decided to do uh, Kennesaw Mountain. We get up there to the top on this one day and we're feeling good. We're feeling charged up. And and Jason made the comment. He said, it's only mountain. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's right. It's only mountain. And so is life, you know. <laughs> so it's like, it
0: stuck so, so like and once stuck, a week so you are, and it seems like you've got a big group some days that yeah. folks are joining your your kind of your gauntlet you're thrown down mm-hmm. yeah. and i love it I, I love the vibe i love the sense of community our, our dear friend kathy morrow robertson has been up with you at least once yeah she, um, she went
1: with us she was worried about whether or not she was going to be able to keep up but she's got to understand we we took our time and we paced it according to the younger part. Now they're always having to slow me down because I'm the kind of I like, I want to get to the top. Let's get this over with. Let's get this done. But anyway, we leave well. nobody behind. <laughs>
0: Love it. I love all this all this stuff you're up to that helps others and gets folks involved and, and, and helps build that sense of community. So to our audience, be sure to check out. We're going to make it really easy beyond what uh, Don has shared here. We're going to include uh, in the show notes ways you can plug in and, and connect with Don separately. So big thanks to Don Edward Long, founder and president at Long Insights LLC. We'll be back in touch soon. Thanks, Scott. You bet. All right, so to our audience – what a great conversation I, I mean I'm, I'm always partial but I've really enjoyed Don's perspective he shared uh, so many different takeaways so many different t-shirt isms I think from this conversation that I'm going to be thinking about in the days to come but on behalf of the entire team here at veteran voices and hey, we invite you to Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn in particular. And if you're a veteran with a special story to tell, hey, reach out, let us know. We'll try to get you on an upcoming show. In the meantime, this is Scott Luton wishing all of you, all of our listeners, nothing but the best. Hey, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody.